Hi everyone, this is Michael for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Eric Tulin, the Applied Behavioral Science Lead of the Center for Behavior and the Environment at RARE, an NGO dedicated to promoting behavioral and social change for the benefit of the environment. Eric was a previous guest on the podcast during one of our episodes associated with a virtual conference of the International Association for the Study of the Commons. I wanted to hear more from him, so I asked him if he wanted to join for a normal, full interview. We talked about Eric's role at RARE and several topics related to it. These included the relationship between applied conservation work and behavioral science and research in academia, the role and challenge of behaviorally oriented policy panaceas, Eric's own findings on the importance of social influence in directed behavior, and the role that emotions play in behavioral change. There's a lot in this one, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric Tulin. Thanks for joining us, Eric. I was, um, you were on this podcast before, and it was for one of these virtual conferences that we did with the International Association for the Study of the Commons, of which we are the official podcast. And this was a new thing we did last year. Um, and I remember it was there was like five of us on the call. And I remember I hadn't met you before that call that I was on for mm-hmm. one of those virtual conferences. And I remember just hearing you describe um, your perspectives on conservation and thinking, okay, this is someone that I want to hear from more. And so here we are. I, I sent you a follow-up email several months later, and you were kind enough to uh, spend an hour, hour and a half with us. So I'm, I'm happy that you're here. I'm excited to hear about your perspectives on behavior and conservation. So welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm really excited to be here. And you know, at that conference, I really got an insight into of folks who are really focused on the commons, how you guys you guys think about it. And, you know, it, it was interesting to see both the, the overlaps as well as differences that, you know, folks coming out of psychology um, and other sorts of kind of behavioral sciences think about them. Um, but yeah, happy to dive into it here. Yeah. So I should maybe even like introduce myself a tad bit more to you. Yeah, so I am definitely a commons person, and you're you're right that there's this there's this field called the commons, and it's one it's it's not a field the way I think a lot of other fields are, right? Like, so you got your PhD in psychology from University of Pennsylvania, and so psychology is definitely a field. I mean, there are subfields, and some field for like anthropology and geography, it's kind of honestly hard to tell what's going on in there. But the commons is also kind of this funny mix of things. We're adjacent to like the 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 field of uh, behavioral psychology and behavioral economics, social psychology, all that stuff. But most of us don't really we're not testing behavioral theories, right? We're not doing that stuff. I discovered um, the field of behavioral economics, like I think a lot of people did, through the I'll just call it the Nudge book, uh, Thaler and Sunstein, Richard Thaler. Um, who maybe were obligated to mention that he won the Nobel Prize because prestige matters. Um, largely, I understand for that work. And I've, I've followed this kind of behavioral nudge movement since then. I've, I've used the nudge book in my standard environmental policy class for like 10 years. It's often my students' like favorite unit because a lot of them are, are they want to be like you, right? They want to be leveraging behavioral science for positive change. And this is the part of that class where we kind of get closest to that space. Um, so it's been a popular part of, of the, the teaching I've done for a while. Um, I'm also aware that there is, 
um, kind of, it's been interesting. I feel like a lot of behavioral scientists in this space, they're a lot of them branch out and become popular. A lot of them kind of branch out of academia and you kind of hear about them. Like, um, I'm forgetting the, this person's full name, uh, Angela Duckworth and the grit movement. And there's like Freakonomics that I listen to sometimes and usually like, but sometimes don't anyway. So I'm, I'm really interested in learning more about your perspectives on the role of behavioral science and how it relates to pro-environmental behavior and conservation. You are currently at, um, and before we started recording, I think it was before we started recording, but it's not going to make it into the interview anyway, so I should mention it. Um, you are not in, quote unquote, in academia, although you're, I, I, I'm interested in hearing about how you engage with academia. You are at this conservation NGO called Rare, where you are the applied behavioral science lead of Rare's Center for Behavior and the Environment. And so from the outside, this looks like it's one of the main kind of modules or projects at Rare. And my understanding is that you are now leading this center. Is that correct? Yeah. So I lead the research and design team. So it's kind of the, the science side of the uh, Center for Behavior in the Environment, which also focuses on kind of capacity building. So like training other nonprofits, um, okay. as well as uh, building demand. So just, you know, getting conservation to recognize the, the importance of, of this kind of work for their own work. So those are kind of the three main pillars with me sort of leading the more quasi-academic research side of things. Okay. And so I know my second question is going to be about Rare and what you do there. My first question is what I call the origin story uh, for the guests. So I'd love to hear about, I mean, the shortest version of this question, Eric, is how you got to where you are. Um, most of our guests actually maybe all of them so far have a PhD. And so a standard unpacking of that question is what led you to get your PhD in psychology? My impression is that you are already focusing on issues related to behavioral change in that PhD. So I'll ask you what led you to get your PhD there in, in psychology and what did you focus on in that work? Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll take you back one further um, to in the origin story, like, you know, from from like, to show kind of the the weirdness of my job preferences from about like five to like into college, my expectation was I was going to be a lawyer. Um, this is perhaps the, the curse of um, growing up with with two par parents who are lawyers. Um, but that was just my expectation. So it was kind of freeing in a way, because one of the, the weird things about doing law is you can kind of do for undergrad whatever you want. Um, they're, they're very open to people doing just about anything. In fact, they're interested in sciencey folks, you know, cro crossing over. Um, so I did this, this program called Cognitive Systems, um, where I was very interested in understanding um, how humans think, but also actually some AI-ish stuff at the University of British Columbia. Um, but then like in a summer um, time during, yeah, between, I think it was my first and second year, I interned with a criminal defense lawyer mm. and just found this to be some of the boringest work I had ever done. <laughs> okay. um, and it's like criminal defense, which is the most interesting side of law. Like it doesn't get more interesting than criminal defense. It was like, oh, if this is, if this is where I'm headed, I've got a problem. Um, so, so that led to sort of like a reorientation of, well, what am I doing here that I find interesting? And I got really interested in sort of the decision-making stuff. Um, 
And I, I, I fell in with a, a research group as an undergrad um, that, that Joe Henrik um, led there, who um, a lot of people might know for kind of um, coining with some other folks at UBC this term weird. Um, so this sort of recognizing that a lot of our research is really just like we know about undergrads at big universities, um, but nobody else in the world, despite that being a tiny minority of, of the population. Um, and, and that really led me to think really strongly about the role of kind of social norms and uh, everything that's that's going on with our behavior, how much we're influenced by by those around us. And, uh, you know, the the kind of unspoken rules that that govern our our actions. Um, so that sort of like, as, as perhaps a, a not uncommon story for folks who end up getting PhDs, um, recognizing that like, well, I don't want to stop thinking about this. Um, it seems like academics are the people who get to keep thinking about this. Um, mm. And in order to kind of sell yourself to academia, you definitely need to be um, confident that uh, I'm going to be an academic. There aren't a lot of, you know, high-end academic programs that want to bring on folks who are already like, and I'm looking forward to not become an academic. So, but that was my expectation at the time. Um, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be an academic. Um, and I ended up with the uh, at Penn in the psychology department, but even there I had a sort of a, a weird experience, sort of similar to almost how you were describing the commons in that my advisor was a philosopher, um, mm -hmm. Christina Bicchieri. And, uh, you know, when I think about the first office I had, it was with a, a behavioral economist, um, a cognitive psychologist, and a uh, experimental economist. So it was not sort of like your standard experience of, of psychology, but all of us were sort of interested in that, you know, broader question of like, how do these social forces mold us and mold our actions into the ones that we actually take um, rather than just sort of assuming this almost automatized way of making decisions, which honestly, even social psychologists oftentimes sort of fall into um, um, thinking in terms of they, instead of looking at the social system, thinking about like how these individuals um, end up making, making decisions at that sort of atomic level. Okay, so yeah, I saw on your website that you, um went to UBC. So are, are you from Canada? No, I'm, I'm from Seattle. Um, okay. So, so not UBC, that far. No, exactly. It was, it was the, the closest you could be while crossing an international border, basically. Okay. So you just needed to get an, a, a bit away from home and crossing the border helped a little bit. Yeah, it was like, it was, it was one of the few programs, uh, places that had a, a cognitive systems program or a cognitive science program. Okay. They've become somewhat more popular now, um, but it, I, I did a lot of robotics in high school um, and was really interested in sort of continuing my just sort of when I could just mess around while I was planning on going to law school, um, continuing doing stuff like that. And yeah, uh, okay. UBC had one of those. Ah, I miss tinkering. But anyway, yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned Joe Henrik. I, um, well, I first heard about him through his I think it's 2010 book, The Secret of Our Success, which I loved. And a lot of that actually is, is quite relevant to the commons field, to the study of cooperative behavior. Oh, I mean, if you've read it, it's like, it's all about cooperative behavior, a lot of it, right? The secret to our success is our like pro-sociality. 100%. And a lot of his work, he, you know, he became well-known as I'm sure you know, but for the audience, um, I don't remember the where or when this was published, but this very well-known paper that was very, it was cross-cultural examination of these, was it a public goods game or it was like these basic um, kind of reciprocity oriented games. And it showed that there actually is variation in behaviors across these cultures. Yeah. One of the, the, the big contribution was, you know, we had 
behavioral economics as a, as a field, it's sort of fallen into the strip of like, oh, this is a human constant. Um, mm -hmm. And his being trained as an anthropologist is thinking, well, I'm, I'm not so certain that uh, everybody is as constant as we like to think. And then sort of looking at, oh, we did it cross-culturally. What did cross-cultural mean? Well, we did it with university students in the US. Right. Um, we did it in, uh, in Europe. And maybe we got Japan in there. Right. So some weird people, some other weird people. Yeah, yeah, it was like, this is not actual cross-cultural. So Joe's yeah. working with, you know, small-scale hunter-gatherers. I was like, well, I wonder how, how, they, would, how they would take to this. Um, and originally used, um, used the ultimatum game, but then expanded it to a lot of different behavioral games, including public goods games, and showing how, you know, there's a lot more variance in how people respond to these. And a lot of his later work is then trying to explain that variance, right. trying to understand why different places end up different, rather than just saying places are different and full stop. Yep. Yeah, I also enjoyed his second book. It was the, the weirdest people in the world. I think it was, which is, is referring directly to that that term that you mentioned. Um, yeah, one of the findings of his that, not that we necessarily want to go off in this direction for the next like forty minutes, but so in the commons field, we worry a lot about markets and market penetration as being something that can disrupt local norms and incentivize people to chop more trees down, et cetera, et cetera. And he has this finding that he mentions that people who are more integrated into market economies are more cooperative. So they, they give more in the ultimating, et cetera, which for me was one of these like challenging, but very interesting moments where I'm used to thinking about markets. I mean, not purely negatively, but like they have a negative valence in a lot of our discourse because we worry about the kind of capitalistic like interruptions of these communities. And so I still haven't kind of squared that circle in my mind. It's like this other annoying thing that I still need to think about. It's like, no, it turns out that like markets can have these other potentially cool, like pro-social impacts on people. I think one thing to sort of understand, I don't want to put words in Joe's mouth. So I'm gonna say my interpretation on, on, on stuff that that him and, and his, his team have sort of found there is that we, we might think of markets as like, oh, these like perfectly written contracts and people just like fulfill them and there's enforcement. That's not how actual market exchange works. Markets actually require a massive amount of trust. And I contrast that with in small scale societies, which don't have any market integration, you don't actually need trust in a sense of trusting an anonymous other because everybody knows everybody. You can all actually look at what, you know, and so you, your reputation is, can all be maintained in that small group. So we don't need this sort of default towards pro-social behavior, even in the context of no reputational consequences, which is actually sort of a requirement for a lot of, of exchanges in, in market systems, which is just weird because it's not how we would normally think about how a market works. But, you know, the, the, Contracts are almost always underspecified, and oftentimes we're engaging with people which, who we're literally never going to meet again. Um, and the fact that we're able to maintain that seems to be because we've built up a lot of norms of how we treat these sort of quasi-anonymous others, and that sort of allowing us to, um, yeah, to kind of expand a pool of who you can cooperate with, rather than right. it just being this like very small group, but rather, you no, know, the social norms that can come along with markets can allow you to um, engage in trusting behavior with a bigger set. Now, that doesn't mean that all market norms are, are, are going to lead towards like positive outcomes or anything, but it does seem to be kind of a reasonably robust conclusion of, yeah, in large markets, you interact with a lot of people you never see again. And right. that's a different way of, you need, you need other things to maintain that cooperation in that type of context. Right. Yeah. I mean, just to dip in this a little bit more, cause I can't help myself. I and mean, I think that that all sounds right, Eric. I mean, 
there's a, I kind of hear this idea that the 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 buildup of this impersonal interpersonal trust is a lubricant for essentially these like large scale cooperative behaviors that we see. They really like it, it's a really almost impossible thought experiment to remove that from our from our current lives, right? Like, what would the world look like if we didn't have everything around us? Well, like everything would be different. Just like nothing would be the same. I think yeah, it really shows the value of doing those massive cross cultural cross cultural projects, right? Yeah. Um, because they don't tell you what your life would be like, but they do give you examples of what mm. life looks like um, when you don't have the same degree of market integration. Now, a lot of these small scale societies now are building in. You know, the Hadza used to be a very popular group to work with to understand how a small scale society um, continues to, now the Hadza are just as integrated as, just as integrated, but like quite integrated into a lot of markets in a way mm. that makes it now more and more difficult. But it does tell you a little bit about what that counterfactual is, right. um, which, you know, starts making it a lot, a lot more tangible or tractable to, to understand those differences. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, it, here's the way my, my brain kind of currently splices that is that this is a, a the scaling up of cooperation is this kind of miraculous. And, and, and in Henrik's second book, he's, he has like a whole chapter or two talking about how you scale up. And a lot of it is about intergroup competition, which to me is like the big, the big challenge of cooperation is not intra-group, it's intergroup because of the synergy between conflict between groups and cooperation within groups. And so as soon as there's this interesting work that's argued that as soon as an a group gets big enough and out-competes out-groups, it struggles once it doesn't have like an external enemy to kind of unite uh, against. But so the, the what, one, yeah, one thing ahead. I would yeah. sort of, you know, a, a pin to that, because I think you're right about talking, you know, the, the in, in, in that account, the importance of, of between group competition. And to be clear, this is not some like genetic thing or anything like that. It's purely the idea of like, you're selecting for different cultural norms mm -hmm. um, and different cultural norms allow different groups to succeed in, in different contexts. But that competition is, is not, it's not necessarily violent. It may not even be yes. that you're even thinking about what those other groups are doing. Um, and in fact, a difference about, you know, this sort of like, cultural groups rather than thinking about genetic groups is um, copying is a big, big part of it too. So mm -hmm. if I see that group doing quite successful, I might copy some of their norms. Um, whether No, there's not some deliberate thought process I'm going through, um, but like imitating successful groups is totally a thing um, that other groups do. And it, it allows for this sort of like cross-pollination of norms that allow you to be relatively successful. So I think sometimes when people think competition, they think of this like, you know, this outgroup that I'm focusing a lot of my attention on or something like right. that. And, and, and oftentimes that's actually not what's going on. It's just the groups that end up being able to scale are the ones who happened on these very cooperative um, right. norms, these norms that sort of just encourage you to both implicitly trust as well as be implicitly trustworthy. Right. Um, that you're going to cooperate when we get into a context where um, you could defect. Right. It doesn't have to be forceful and direct. So um, the, the, the comment I actually wanted to make about the scaling up of, of cooperative behaviors is, I mean, I think Henrik came from the kind of Tubi and Cosmides line of thinking of like, like the evolutionary psychology, or at least he seems to um, cite them a fair amount. And they had an article, I think in like 1996, I was randomly reading the other day where they talked, they actually mentioned this. The challenge of, and actually in like sociology that's referred to like as gazelle shaft versus gamine shaft, like 
impersonal transactional relationships versus uh, communitarian relationships. Kind of what you were, we, you mentioned in the beginning, like these small scale engagements where people are more humanized versus more transactional relationships where the identity of the other person is kind of flattened and there's, there's less information and um, the motivations behind the engagements are more extrinsic versus intrinsic. And I think for me, when I think about the miracle of markets and the miracle of large scale social coordination, to me that what's somewhat sent being left behind is the more communitarian relationships because those are harder to scale. Yeah, and I mean, so, so going back to kind of the, the the premise there, I think what what Joe and 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 Tubi and Cosmides share is an appreciation for like you know the evolved mechanisms in your head are important. They right. differ dramatically in what they think those are, like quite quite starkly. So okay, like someone like Joe Henrik who kind of um, comes out of this um, and and in a lot of ways like really push forward this this line of thinking about the like culture gene co-evolution um, mm -hmm. is pretty different from this idea that we have a bunch of very specifically operationalized um, ways of, of, of thinking about all sorts of different situations, which would be more consistent with what a lot of um, kind of what the folks who would generally be called evolutionary psychologists would, would think and to be in Cosmides being very associated with that. Whereas like the culture gene co-evolution folks who like, you know, I think, you know, Joe's working with like Pete Richardson and Rob Boyd. Yeah. I'm really pushing yep. that forward. It was more, oh, maybe what happened, what distinguishes humans is this evolution of these mechanisms for sustaining social norms. So we learn all of these skills for, for example, learning from those around us, learning what um, other people are going to sanction us for and stuff when we get real, real good at that. And that actually allows you to apply it to a bunch of different contexts. So what we got really good at was sort of social learning. Um, and that's what distinguishes us rather than, oh, we learned a lot of very specific mechanisms. So when we think about, you know, different sorts of norms that different communities could have, whether they be small scale or large scale, what someone from this culture gene co-evolution world is going to say is like, well, there was the genetic evolution that led us to learn, to, 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 sorry, to develop these mechanisms for learning. Um, and then it was the cultural evolution that made that even more relevant. And it sort of has a feedback loop mm -hmm. <laughs> of like the more and more you start living in a group where, where you need to be able to learn culture, um, the more culture there is to learn. And then it just, you just sort of end up being the, this cultural being that we've become. Right. Today. Because it becomes even more adaptive to be able to socially learn. Exactly. More, yeah, and it just has this, and, and you end up with these, you know, very particularly designed big brains. So not right. just, not just like, oh, we're real smart. In fact, you know, there's some really awesome studies showing how in some contexts, like outside of not so much social learning around imitation and so like chimps outperform kids. Like, mm. you know, we, we are not necessarily better at learning generally. What we're way better at is social learning. Right. Um, like just, just no other animal and you do have animals that socially learn, but, but no animal is able to do it in the way that, that humans are. Right. Yeah. I, I associate the, um, so this thing she just made, uh, well, I guess I should mention that I was, I was first exposed to, Richardson and Boyd, they actually had a chapter in a, a book on the commons called Drama of the Commons in 2002. And I, they, I think it was called like an evolutionary theory of the commons or something like that. And they talked about the need for these kind of cultural workarounds that I thought was a really interesting framework for thinking about commons problems. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like partly what you're talking about is this, I've, I've heard it described as a kind of modular theory of the mind that we have these like very specific modules that are designed to solve like these very specific problems. Um, okay, I, we've, we've definitely gone off the deep end already. So I, I, I'd like to get back to um, your work at Rare and my understanding, and I actually got this from a, a Rare video, they talk about the historic prevalence of um, conservation-oriented, biologically-oriented sciences at these environmental NGOs. And that's, there's, there's a long history of that in, in the environmental NGOs um, for a long time. And then, I don't know how long I would, I would go back. In the last 10-ish, maybe some people would say 15 years, there's been an increasing appreciation for kind of conservation and social science, for the role of humans in conservation, for the importance of understanding human behavior. My impression is that your role at Rare represents this shift. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, you know, the, the, when you think about how, what conservation has been doing for like quite a while, it's, it's always been behavior change in the sense of like, if I'm passing a law telling people to not go into the reserve, that that's behavior change. Someone is going to do something differently, you hope, because mm -hmm. you passed, passed the law, right? And that's true for, you know, the financial incentives people are interested in offering. That's true for the purely just like information-based campaigning that, that oftentimes was being done in conservation. It's like, if we just tell them about it, like they'll do it. And I think sort of the, the shift that the kind of behavior -y people coming on board um, has led to is like, those are relevant parts of the toolkit. But that's mm -hmm. only part of the toolkit. If, if you want to know how to do an effective regulation, you need to think about how people actually respond to regulations. And I contrast that like a little bit with, um, you know, just social science being incorporated in general, because th there, there was then this incorporation of social science, which led to, you know, we were talking about market-based um, solutions. And while some of those were successful, some of them were utter failures. And it, and it was because of some assumptions that people have about how people interact with markets, rather than thinking about the, the more empirical, behaviorally informed perspective of like, how do people actually interact with them? So when, when we're thinking about the sort of broadened toolkit, we're also thinking about, you know, how are people interacting socially? What do we know about social systems? How are people emotionally responding to what's going on around them? Or, you know, going back to the nudge style stuff, how is just the way in which the choice has been presented, what they'll call the choice architecture is really influencing somebody's choice. So it's not a, a, a rejection of those other techniques. It's more a recognition of all of this is about shifting behavior and let's bring the whole toolkit um, to bear on the challenge. Okay. So uh, one question occurs to me here um, in a lot of this behavioral work, or at least a lot of experimental work that tries to test how cooperative people are, there's this kind of red herring in my mind put forward of, okay, if people act rationally, this is what will happen. And I don't know this person very well, but there was a blog post by this fellow named Jason Collins I saw a while back that basically said, look, if you can go to Wikipedia, you can find like a hundred different ways in which we're quote unquote irrational. At, the, at some point, can we just stop talking about these being irrationalities, departures from some kind of supposed ideal that actually doesn't ever exist. I honestly feel the same way about some 
of the kind of traditional ways we think about markets. Like, oh, we have perfectly competitive markets, except when there's market failures. Oh, and by the way, externalities are actually everywhere. And in my mind, I'm like, well, why do we start with the supposed ideal when actually that's never the case? And what happens is the quote unquote exceptions are, are what predominate. Is this idea of a rational actor useful to you in your work? Or is that, what's your opinion about that? Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. I mean, one, if anybody says like, full stop, like cooperation in an experimental, um, like public goods game is irrational, like fire that person as an economist. Cause that's, that's entirely false. Like there, mm -hmm. there's nothing that that is sort of this presupposed assumption of a particular utility function of not caring about the payoffs of other people that does not have to be true. In fact, like a lot of the innovations of like the early innovations in kind of social, uh, experimental economics and, and behavioral economics were sort of like the Ernst Fair um, model of like how you no you totally can um, transform this game um, based on people's plausible utility functions about how they care about their payoff relative to other people. Um, so just want to put a pin in that of like sometimes um, you you have folks who there's like two sides of this who just want to say like oh well it makes all of these crazy crazy assumptions or these crazy assumptions about people's behavior. And it's like, well, okay, maybe, but not all the ones you assume it does. Right. <laughs> and there's the other side of things where it's like, well, if everything that we're doing is, um, you know, irrational, like what's, what's the value of even bringing this model to, to, to bear? I think that we have done you know, the, the, the tradition that sort of came out of like Kahneman and Tversky of, of documenting um, these biases. And if, if you look at a lot of the early stuff that they were doing, they were very clear on what we are doing is showing that this model does not always predict you know, the, 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 the behavior. And they did a, a nice job of that, but they weren't trying to demonstrate how prevalent those, those deviations were. They were hmm. trying to demonstrate that they exist. It was an existence proof that like this does not fully explain people's behavior. Um, that's where we were. Yeah. And, 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 and one of the problems, I think, you know, I was, I was literally just talking to a teammate about this last week of how, you know, behavioral science and behavioral economics has not done a particularly good job of documenting how prevalent those, those deviations are, how much of our behavior is accountable by you know, in what context, by by what models. And it, honestly, it's not entirely sure, clear how you would even go about in that enterprise. But I, but I think sometimes um, these, these models of rational agents actually get a short shrift because someone's like, oh, I've got an existence proof of like, sometimes we get deviations. And it's what really matters to us is, well, when do we expect that? And as a practitioner who's doing stuff, you know, doing research, but also really care about like actually getting it into the real world, what I care about is in this context, what behaviors ought I expect given, given what we know? And it, it's not irrelevant to think about how, you know, people would rationally respond to this, but it's also become super relevant to think about, well, when would we expect them to behave differently from that? And what are sort of our constructive models rather than just saying, oh, well, here's a, a set of a hundred different deviations, um, because that's not actually a particularly helpful thing when you're trying to design. Actually, when you're actually trying to think about, yeah what you do when and where um okay so i'm going to stop distracting myself with like the next question i want to impatiently ask you uh in lots of different directions and make sure i focus back on your your position at rare which is what the last thing i had wanted to mention so how long have you been at rare eric um 
I want to say just about yeah, three years um, okay. coming up this this week. Actually, I think it's based. Is it based in DC? Yeah, right outside, just in, in Arlington. Though though I'm coming coming to you from uh, cloudy Seattle rather than uh, oh okay Arlington. So you're you're you were working. I'm in. I'm actually in San Francisco. I think I mentioned to you. Yeah, so not that far. Yeah. Uh, so 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 um, during the the pandemic, though, weirdly started planning just about a month beforehand um, to go remote, and then everybody went remote. Um, but right. that included included me too. Kind of. Oh, so you started to, right before the pandemic. No, I started like a, I guess it was a year before, year before. or I'm off by a year in the numbers of it's, it's, you know, the trope now of pandemic time that you've completely lost track. Oh, but totally. I was at rare for about a year before the pandemic. So okay. you can have the same way you've got like BC and AD, we've got like pre-pandemic and post totally. a year before and however long afterwards. Yeah. No, I've realized several times that I'll mention that something happened a year ago. And what I mean is that it happened a year before the pandemic, because <laughs> my brain's just not counting this new time. Um, okay. So my impression now then, Eric, is that you are you are actively conducting this kind of applied research at Rare. Is that correct? Behavioral yeah, so change research. No, it's exactly right. I mean, the, the, the team that I lead sort of has two strands to it. One is sort of like research and design. Um, so and they 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 kind of merge together in the sense that designing good interventions um, requires good research and sometimes and oftentimes that means we need to conduct it ourselves um, because it may not be out there but uh, it is this idea of you know we're we're a bit different quite a bit different than the than the standard sort of academic research group in the sense that you know we're, we're doing the research that we just see like there's demand in the field for like us to be able to do things differently um, which sometimes you know is not necessarily always as theoretical um, or as theoretically like compelling as some of the research being done in academia, but ends up having like you know much clearer practical implications. I mean, that sounds like a lot of academics. It sounds like something a lot of academics wish they were doing more of. <laughs> it explains how I'm able to recruit, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> is 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 you know, and that's, and that's why I that's why I joined too. Um, but. Uh, you know, it's interesting, all the folks who I've brought on to our team, um, perhaps to my surprise as well, none of them have particularly environmental backgrounds. Um, it's, you know, that 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 has a lot to do with, you know, the where the advances have been in behavioral science are not necessarily among environmental folks, but it is people who are recognizing, like, I want to have an impact and I have these, you know, research skills, what can I do? So, mm -hmm. you know, we can recruit, you know, the sort of going down the roster, we've got someone who's a behavioral science trainer, we have more like neuroscience, we have um, sort of public like behavioral policy, we have public health, but none of these people was their like background actually doing anything specifically about the environment, um, which, you know, describes me too. I was working on public health stuff before, before joining Rare um, on like sanitation and like, how do you get people to uh, start using toilets? Um, okay. But, but it wasn't, yeah, it, 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 the, the draw oftentimes is exactly what you're saying, which is I have this skill set. Um, now I want to apply it to, to really do something and not be under the same pressures um, of academia to, you know, everything has to be a novel theoretical contribution um, mm -hmm. or everything itself like that that you're just so focused on what's the minimum publishable unit. And like, I, I need to clear that bar before justifying anything was for us, it's not an irrelevant component. Like, you know, if we have something that we think is valuable to share, we care because it could influence, you know, other people's research and other people's doing. Um, but it's not the thing, right? Like we'll do research sometimes that never gets seen because we think that it's still impactful, even if it doesn't. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. This is therapeutic for me now, Eric. I mean, I, um, I had heard this term like a year or two ago, this idea of innovation bias, the idea that every article that needs to come out needs to be this like new, beautiful blossoming brick to the house of science. And I remember, I don't remember if it was like a, an R, a revised resubmit that I was actually on, or I just heard about, but it was like, we I'll say, I'll, we went to the field and we collected some new data and looked at this community fishery and a reviewer was like, well, what's, what's, what's the innovation here? And it was like, well, no one's done this type of work here and it's valuable to this time and place. Like what, what are you asking for here? Well, you know, the, the horrible, you know, like what group of people like never get that question, like never is too strong, but like if you're doing research among like rich white people, everyone's like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, th th this is, you know, this is a, a good enough population for us to just like say things about like the world mm. and stuff. But mm -hmm. if you ever try to see like, hey, how well is, I'm not going to make a novel theoretical contribution there, except to the idea of the generalizability of, right. of these of these constructs. And I, I think that the, the classic situation that you'll see that in is if you're doing work outside the US, your title has to include where you did it. But if you do work in the US, you never have to say where you did it um, mm. because it's just like, there's the default of like, you know, the right. default subject is like, you know, this this person in the States. Um, but for some reason it starts becoming like, oh, we need to caveat it when we've done it with anybody anywhere else. Right, because, because it's different. Yeah, yeah, because that's because that's not who we see as, it, it's just this weird idea of like, oh, we can generalize from, weird ourselves. populations you know like the, the yep. rich white folks and we can't generalize um from other populations and i don't necessarily think the answer is you can generalize from those other populations the answer is you can't necessarily generalize from any of these groups right um and knowing only about this one and just sort of treating it as like well if we know it really well for that group we know it for everyone has right. been a I mean, it's been a horrible thorn in the side of psychology in particular for, for quite some time. Um, and yeah, just a lot of this work where we're, we are trying to understand what are the dynamics that make it different in different contexts ends up actually becoming, you know, less tractable academically, but is, but is very relevant in the conservation space um, because yeah. we're very interested in people who are not in the US when we're thinking about conservation. Yeah. And the, the minimal publishable unit that you mentioned too, I've struggled with this more and more. I mean, I've, I've been in my current position for nine years. I definitely went through the phase of just kind of cranking on papers. And honestly, this podcast has been for me like a very healthy departure from that kind of myopic focus on just like maximizing the number of PDFs I can crank out. I, I wrote a blog post, I don't know, last year with a friend of mine, Mike Schoon on this kind of academic arms race we basically have publication inflation, right? Like at some point, you know, back in my day, five publications would get you a postdoc, if not maybe like a, a tenure track position. And now, you know, five postdocs doesn't buy you what it used to. And every time someone publishes more and more, you know, that's good for them. There's also the Matthew effect of sooner or later, if you, if after an inflection point, you kind of get cited for just being cited. Perhaps um, miss misspeak, but I think represents it quite well. As you said, the the five postdocs doesn't get you as far as it used to, um, yeah. because I, rather than five publications. Ah, because yeah, I, yeah. I, but there's something there's something to this of you know there there is. This, oh, did I say five postdocs? <laughs> yeah, but okay. but it's starting to sound realistic. Um, or if it's not realistic yet, then um, you know, ten years from now, people will be doing five postdocs. Um, and and I think it is because of this. 
you know, the, the particular ecosystem that people see for themselves in as somebody who's been trained to do academic quality research is there's one out. Like you, 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 you have either succeeded or failed by the quality of the tenure track position that you have secured. Right. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a disturbing norm. Like that, 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 that is the, you know, I don't think it's good for the, for researchers, like in terms of just like themselves, but I, but it's not good for the things that these researchers care about either, because yep. it, it constrains their, you know their their flexibility in in what they plausibly could be seen doing with their career, and therefore aren't able to have the impact they otherwise would have had if they didn't have this, you know, nasty social norm of like this is what your your success is judged by. Yeah, and it's a very fragile norm, right? We talk about the importance of diversity and promoting resilience, and maybe this is talked about in the in the literature on psychological resilience. I don't know, but. For me, I think an important component of psychological resilience can be kind of diversity of identities, diversity of paths that lead you to have one identity or another. And if you can, if there's only one path and one identity that's acceptable, well, then what happens when that fails, right? I think about athletes sometimes this way, where they focus on this like one social identity for so long, so many of them struggle once they are too old to do this. And it's like, well, if I'm not this, who am I, right? And that's like deeply threatening to a human being. Um, okay. So, um, with respect to your research at the center, Eric, is it correct to, to say that the main outcomes you're looking at are related to cooperative behaviors, the provision of, of environmentally relevant public goods? Are those the kind of outcomes that you're trying to explain? Oftentimes though, I actually, a, a big part of, you know, our, our process or design process is not assuming that every problem is a particular <laughs> kind of not becoming the shop of like, you know, I've got a hammer, so everything's a nail. Um, so, so like, while a lot of our challenges are cooperative, for example, we work on savings clubs in some of the fishing communities um, that mm. we work with to, to, to build their own like financial resilience. This is actually more of sort of a, a time preference problem than it is a, a cooperative problem. Um, so the types of solutions that we, we don't just try to, oh, well, what we need is the same style of solution that we need for preventing people from fishing in a reserve area. Um, we need to sort of understand what is the, the, the both the social and psychological factors people are bringing to this particular behavior and then designing for for that specifically. Okay. I mean, th that does lead me to, you've mentioned the hammer and the nail. So I had in my notes written that I want to ask you about panaceas because that's a big part of our discourse <laughs> in the comments, right? Like one of the main takeaways from Eleanor Ostrom's career who, you know, more than anyone started the field of the commons is that there's no panaceas, right? So I mentioned to you Again, I think before we started recording that I'm doing a project on environmental property rights. And in the property rights space is where you see a lot of these panaceas, right? People say that we need property rights to save the environment. You know, ultimately what they, what they usually mean is a very particular brand of property rights that are associated with commodification uh, and well-articulated markets. You know, when you hear about environmental organizations like the Environmental Defense Fund, who's very oriented towards that brand of property rights as being the kind of the answer. So there are organizations that are very kind of hammer driven, like they have their, their, their tool. And 
you know, I think you could say that and not be critical, actually, like maybe it's okay for some organizations to, and maybe to some extent, it's actually hard to avoid that, right? Like, you know, you're going to develop your response. Actually, we can't totally avoid it all the time, right? Like sometimes I'm, I, I'll just say flippantly to a colleague of mine, well, academics can academic, right? Because that's what we do. Like once you're professionalized, you're going to, there's a tendency towards, you know, professionalization is like building your hammer. And so there is a natural tendency to be like, okay, well, now I know how to do statistical regression. So I'm going to kind of look for data that like that looks okay for. So I think there is to some extent unavoidable tendency in that direction that comes along with formalization and professionalization. I, I do agree with what was at least implied in your response is that this is problematic, right? Because context matters because you can't just be looking around for things, you know, you, your responses should adapt to context, not the other way around. So my question to you is, insofar as you agree that this is a problem, how do you avoid it? How do you avoid in your, because, you know, your, your work is applied. There's, there's, there's a tendency, particularly maybe in applied work to say, like, okay, like we have this answer and it's not just, oh, let's waffle about how complicated things are. That's not really satisfying either. And, and some of us academics have a tendency to do that to talk about, we have like complex ease where you just like talk very articulately about how complicated things are without getting to the prescription. Um, how do you avoid that in your own work, in your own team? Yeah, I mean, I think one sort of key thing to, to, to lead off with is just no one should be anti-hammer. Like hammers are important. Hammers help you build stuff. Hammers are not the only tool that are necessary for building things. And I think that's that's the difficulty that, that goes on. So when you're thinking about, um, you know, the, this organization is sort of specialized in that way. That's great. Like that is how you build competence is, is through, through specialization. However, the problem is when that organization starts thinking that this is the solution to all problems, um, because rather than like trying to figure out kind of what the, what the fit is there. So when, so we're sort of oftentimes thinking about from, from our perspective, the, the version where I think there, there, there's room for criticizing how we're thinking, though I think is, is defensible is, um, we're we're defining the 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 problems uh, that sort of exist in conservation as largely behavioral in nature. Now that that could be criticized, but but the the way that I'm describing that is what I mean is to solve most conservation challenges or environmental challenges in general. We work a lot on like climate change and stuff like that as well. Is you need somebody to do something, <laughs> and and that by definition is a you know, a behavioral challenge. Now, which tools you bring from that broad toolbox that I was describing before, I think is where you start running into problems. If you're only pulling one of those tools all the time, um, you've you've got an issue. Now, so from our team, like, although we actually just did recently bring someone on board whose expertise is in sort of behavioral public policy, like, we're not necessarily a policy shop, right? So, so mm -hmm. if the if the only solution to that particular challenge is a policy one, or it doesn't require some of these other tools, like we're probably not the right group, and we should probably be referring people to groups that are. Um, and and we do that a lot when we when someone comes to us like, hey, we want to work on this challenge. We're like, that's great. Let us understand it. Okay, now that we understand it, like we're not we're not necessarily the people who are tooled right um, for for dealing with it, but. You see the reverse problem as well, where people are saying like all there is is you know policy solutions, for example. Um, and oftentimes, what we're suggesting is one that sort of complexification that you were talking about of it's more complex than that, but hopefully getting one step further on and saying, well, 
what is the interaction here? Like, what are the different things, levers that we could pull together to like collectively be, be more effective? Um, and which one of those are we relevant for, um, which tend not to be the purely policy ones, um, and which ones are we less, you know, less and more relevant for? I will say also rare as a whole, which is different from kind of my position just within the center, but does take, you know, the, that anytime we have these sort of complex problems, you need a much more sort of integrated solution. So taking something like Fish Forever, so Rare runs this rather large small-scale fisheries program, hundreds of thousands of fishers across, you know, a few continents. I think we're in 12 countries or something like that now. Um, but, you know, it's integrated all the way down from like national government lobbying down to like individual fisher behavior change with the understanding that if we don't, for example, like devolve regulatory authority to these smaller communities like these you know national governments can't necessarily always you know do what they need to be doing there um but also you need to convince you know individual fishers to do things differently and the, and the right solutions oftentimes integrate across all of those levels rather than just saying it's one or the other mm -hmm. yeah that was kind of what i was thinking about asking you next is how what are the other like parts of rare and i i had seen that there was this fish forever program but didn't know anything about it I mean, that leads me to this question next then is like how, what is the relationship between like your group and other parts of Rare? How do you all engage? And actually before that even, like how big is your group, Eric? Um, so the research and design team, it's so like the subcomponent of the Center for Behavior in the Environment. So that group is six people at the moment. Okay. And the Center for Behavior, um, Behavioral so Science? Um, so the Center for Behavior in the Environment is... Yep. So we're doing 15, 20, I don't know, we've fluctuated okay. a little bit um, in the last in just, that just a few months. Okay. Yeah. So how do you all engage with other parts of Rare? Do, are, are other folks kind of collecting the data as a part of their applied work and then you're analyzing it? How does that all work? Yeah, so there's kind of, you know, two big components of what the center is doing. One is this much more external focusing. So we, we work a lot with, with external partners. It's really a field building initiative. Outside so of Rare, you mean? Exactly. So it's not focused only on, on our own programs, um, but it's working with these external partners, which we see as sort of the big lever of if we need, like we are a mid-sized NGO. Like we, if we want to have the level of impact that we think we can, we need to work through partners. But that also means working with almost like our, our internal partners as well. So Rare has kind of three other more traditional programs um, in its in its portfolio. So one of them is Fish Forever, as we were just talking about. So that's you know small scale fisheries management. Another one is called Lands for Life. Um, so that's looking at promoting regenerative agriculture, um, particularly at the moment in, in Colombia. Um, and a third one called Make It Personal, which focuses on reducing emissions in in high income countries. Um, and that um, at the moment is focused in the United States. Okay. Um, and then my team um, sort of works with each one of those programs on, on two different components, but the research and the design. So, so we will work with them to think through, you know, how to design a program that's going to be most effective to actually shift, shift people's behavior, recognizing that we only bring like one piece of that pie, right? Like we're working with real experts in these, in the, in these fields. So we need to bring our lens to help them understand their problem, but, you know, we're not going to tell them what program to, to do. Um, and then also working with them to do the upfront research to understand their, their audience, as well as the, the evaluative um, of research to understand what sort of impact they're having. Um, okay. So it really sort of blends together the, the research and the designing of, well, we need to understand who you're working with. We need to help you understand them so you can build a better program. And then we need to see like, you know, are we having the change we thought we would? 
Okay. So diving into some of your research and your research findings specifically, Eric, I suppose I have one more lead up question to this. I've been reading a lot in the last year about the theory of motivational crowding and the associated distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. I read a book recently called the basically self-determination theory by DC and Ryan, I think it's their, the author's names. And then I know that other folks like Sam Bowles have, have made similar arguments that, and this is really, this is, I'm coming from a policy perspective, I suppose here. Um, within the policy discourse, we don't think about these things. We think about formal incentives. It's interesting when I hear an economist say, well, as an economist, I think about incentives. My response in my brain is, well, I think everyone does that. I think everyone thinks that incentives affect behavior. The issue is what counts as an incentive. Is it only extrinsic incentives where I'm paying someone or are we taking seriously, you know, and I think this interfaces a lot with your work when we're thinking about social influence and other factors that affect change, the internalization of, of norms has to be an important part. And this goes, I mean, Henrich's work relates to this as well. Um, we have to be thinking about the processes that lead to norm internalization. Because in some ways, again, from a policy governance perspective, that's like the golden What's golden that we say is good? The gold something. The holy grail. Goose? I don't know. Golden goose. It, it, that, yeah, that's where I think my brain was headed, but it didn't sound right. So, right. So because that's like self, that's self-enforcing. Yep. Right. If that's, that's what's, to some extent, that's what internalizing a norm means is that you derive positive psychological benefits from not just complying with it, but enforcing it on other people. Are those concepts a part of your toolkit, a part of your framework, and part of how you conduct your work is, is to leverage that distinction between these different types of motivations and incentives? It's certainly the, the idea of how do we sort of form social norms and get that you know, internalization process that you were describing going is, and, and reinforced is, is critical for what we're doing. You know, the, an interesting sort of, um, and this is a problem with a lot of research in psychology, um, that, you know, the... I think the story around the the crowding out stuff is is actually a lot more mixed than we we give it credit for. Um, in the sense of like, so there's been some recent meta analyses that find that like maybe there isn't as much motivational crowding as as we might have otherwise thought um, there there is. Um, so it's it's something where a particular idea that I wouldn't like. I wouldn't rest a program on the just the notion of like oh well if right. we put in these incentives it's going to motivationally crowd. I think the the somewhat more complex, but I find to be much better documented um, and, and related finding is, so when, when we think about social norms, what we, what the, those, are, those are rules of behavior that, pers that, that, that describe how you're supposed to act in a particular context. And yep. what, what we do know is that you can, different things can activate different social norms um, in a given context. So we could have, you know, for example, a norm of equal division, or we could have a norm of division according to input or something like that. Um, those could both apply in the same situation. And which one get up, gets applied, you know, changes the outcome. And I think what the what could explain some degree of the, um, you know, both early successful findings as well as some of the, the later failures is what, what, a better way in my mind of understanding motivational crowding is norm activation. So if you um, activate a um, market norm where the expectation in that market is just like exploit, 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 then 
yeah, you're like likely to get you know defections in your in your cooperative game, but that's not necessarily the norm that that's being activated there. Um, and if you want to understand what's going to happen, you need to understand which type of norm is likely to be activated by by your intervention. So what we're oftentimes doing when we're trying to particularly addressing cooperative challenges is to create the right sort of fertile ground for a community to think through this problem, realize that they actually somewhat deliberately like want to self-select into a norm that they find will lead to better outcomes for them. Um, and then giving them sort of the context to do that norm shift and to reinforce. But it's not just sort of an assumption of like what norm will come about given a particular style of intervention. Okay. Um, when you talk about norms as being part of our psychology that guides behavior that are triggered by context, that honestly strikes me as being somewhat similar to when people talk about like the modular theory of the mind, these different modules that we have that are like guide our behavior that are triggered by context. Is that an interesting or useful similarity to you? So, so, so yes, but the, the distinction that would oftentimes come up between folks who are particularly inclined to think of sort of like the, the culture gene co-evolution folks is mm -hmm. where is that informed by? Is it genetically evolved? And I right. think the evidence is probably not. That's my position and the position of other folks who are particularly inclined towards thinking that actually what we have the best evidence for is the, these cultural learning strategies are how we learn what norm is going to apply in, in a given context. And then we do do something along the lines of what you're saying, which is sort of pulling out like, oh, this is the right norm. Um, this got activated, but the input there was cultural. So right. we didn't come pre-born with a whole set of possible norms. We, we learned them through these, these, these processes. And that's what a successful sort of voluntary cooperative behavior change um, needs to do is sort of, you know, leverage those those social learning strategies um, to like help a community lead itself into a, a cooperative outcome. Okay. So turning like quite directly now to, to some of your work and the findings that you've produced, Eric, can you talk to me about your work on the role of social influence? and how it affects the outcomes that we care about in terms of the environment and society? Yeah, so, I mean, one, one you know, when we first kicked off this program that I kind of, that I make it personal, so focusing on, um, you know, individual action um, to address um, climate change, recognizing that the U.S., despite like Rare's history of focusing on kind of the places that we were trying to conserve, some of the biggest threats to them aren't actually in those places, but are folks in high-income countries like us um, producing massive amounts of emissions. So it's like, okay, well, what what what's the relevance of our toolkit to that? One of the first projects that we did was just trying to understand, well, what are sort of the, almost like the psychological predictors of um, engaging in the, the behaviors that matter? So not just any behavior, but the high impact um, climate behaviors. And what we found across a set of like four of the highest impact behaviors, it was in a remarkably consistent pattern. By far the best predictor of an individual um, taking action was their belief about those around them taking action. And once you adjust for that, um, the, the sort of like your political orientation 
doesn't seem to matter all that much. It has no unique predictive value. Or your even how much you like care about climate change um, doesn't actually seem to predict your either previous adoption or intention to adopt these behaviors in the future. But rather these, as would be predicted by you know the sort of social learning and social pressure models um, that we would you know expect for a voluntary cooperative behavior. You thinking that other people are doing it um, is is you know, remarkably strong. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, I mean, I think Thaler and Sunstein talk about this kind of idea in the nudge book of, I don't think they use this term. I think I've seen it somewhere else. It's kind of boomerang effect you can have because of social influence. If you are trying to convince people to use less energy and you're trying to leverage social influence, uh, what happens if they discover through your program that actually they're using less energy than most people around them? Um, they talk in the nudge book how that actually can lead people to use more energy. So this that's the double-edged sword of social influence, right? I think generally is that uh, it's good if you have good social norms that people are mimicking and internalizing, but can be just as bad otherwise. And that, that's right. And I think that, so when we think about the, actually, I, when I was doing my postdoc, we tried to do a like a, a meta-analysis on boomerang effects because we, we were trying to figure out like what is exactly the shape of that? Because what we, what we were finding was despite there being some of those early findings that, that showed that really strong boomerang, in general, what we were seeing was sort of a leveling off of just like, it, it, it not necessarily that you were getting the people were doing it more because they saw people you know, around them were doing it less than they thought, but they just like, it wasn't motivating to them. Okay. Um, however, but even, even given, that, given that, that caveat, it's still like, really critical to think about what is the way that instead of just, you know, broadcasting the fact of like what the base rate is, if that's very rare, that's not going to be effective. Right. Mm -hmm. So telling people, Hey, FYI, like 2% of people are driving electric vehicles is not going to convince anybody to drive an electric vehicle. Right. So, so, but what we start thinking about are like much more compelling, given what we actually know about how people really learn socially strategies for, for increasing adoption, because, um, there's there's a great paper um, by I, I want to say um, Liz Pollock um, where basically she she sort of just like goes to town on psychologists for sort of resorting to the easiest possible social um, influence strategy, which is saying like percentages at people, mm -hmm. which is perhaps surprising to nobody, not the way that people socially learn. Like, like how much of what you learned about those around you was because somebody showed you some stat. Like that's, right. that's not how it works. Um, what ought to be far more effective strategies are actually changing how they're perceiving the social environment around them. So for example, um, you know, purchasing green energy is a possibly very effective strategy for um, reducing your carbon footprint. However, nobody knows whether or not you purchased green energy. So how can we get people in your environment to know that you did? Maybe, you know, this is a toy example, but like there's a sticker on your window saying like, this house is powered by sun. Um, but, but that's updating the people who actually care about you in your reference network's belief about like what you're doing um, in a way that would be much more compelling than saying 10% of Americans are purchasing green energy. Yeah, the visibility issue is really interesting there, Eric. Um, I remember hearing, and this gets back to the kind of nudge movement and how it's permeated into some aspects of government, that during the Obama years, when they were unrolling a lot of their public health stuff, that they tried to, I mean, one of the, ten, like, one of the attractive things about the nudge approach is that you're changing, as you mentioned, like this choice architecture in ways that people don't necessarily notice. And you're changing the default options. So they select something like, 
most people just stick with the default option that's presented to them because it's it's less work. Okay, but then by design, you're doing things that are not noticeable by other people and therefore it's actually hard to get credit for what you're doing. I remember that being actually something people talked about in, in the Obama years. It's like they're doing these innovative behavioral changes, but because they're doing them in ways that are hard to detect by design, it's harder for them to get credit for them. Yeah. Do you remember hearing anything about that? Or Yeah, I, I, and I, I, I did. Um, and I also, I think that, so because of the, there's a weird thing going on in sort of research around these you know, behavior change interventions where because they're so driven by what can be done in academia, they get driven by what can I do that demonstrates the cleanest effect of the psychological phenomena, which oftentimes tends to not be the most compelling or interesting interventions um, in, in the real world. Um, but they tend to be the ones where we can really clearly isolate the effect of, oh, I moved this exact belief. And like, that's the thing that's going on. Um, right. Like Look a, at this a, one coefficient. And that's the story. Yeah, and, and, and I need to be able to change it very easily. So you get these things like telling people the percentage of people who are doing things because that's a lot easier to roll out. It's a lot easier to attribute the effect to. You can do these nice you know, individual level RCTs. Um, but I, I actually think that that's a problem with how sort of behavioral interventions are understood by a lot of folks is that that's what they are. <laughs> They're all these things that are like, uh, attempting to be, you know, oftentimes under the radar, but at least these like smaller effects. And if, so, so a, a colleague and I, um, Philippe Bougeot, um, wrote a, a piece in the Behavioral Economics Guide where basically we're arguing that that's a, it's a massive misunderstanding of the what behavioral science has to to offer to be to like environmental behavior change, if you think of it just as those, rather than things like you know, the fisheries program I was talking about earlier, that's a two-year engagement. <laughs> that mm -hmm. has parades. This is about as not like subtle Controlled as, as and, you yeah. can imagine, but it's yep. still a behavior change program. And mm -hmm. there's and 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 the understanding of how people behave has a lot to say for those programs. Um, now you you need to understand what's the the return on investment for that versus these really light touch programs. But because they get much larger effects, the return on investment may well may well be there. Mm. I mean, this is really interesting. Within the field of economics, you you have this impression that a lot of there's a lot of like intellectual group pride around their ability to rigorously examine the data to tease out cause and effect, right? Like, and that's that's in the social sciences, like in political science, is like nipping at their heels in some ways in terms of like the the norms driving that. That is seen as like the sine qua non of like the most rigorous type of science we can do. Like, I, I don't think I'm that argument's there strongly. And it sounds like partly what you're well, are you saying this that the you know, a standard argument against experimental science is the lack of ecological validity, which is kind of it's it's a kind of external validity, right? Of it's, like it's 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 actually it's a I think it's a little bit different than what I'm than what I'm what I'm getting at there, which is it's not that I don't believe the effects that they're finding, though there may be reasons to not believe them that are independent of, of, of this sort of focus on these like small manipulatable components, but it's that that's not what we care about when we actually go do interventions in the real world. That is right. useful for demonstrating a, like just a, sort of like another existence proof of right. like this, this bias exists or people pay attention to this, this affects choice. 
but what the, the error that I, I see in is in the translation. It is taking seriously as interventions some of these very small things. I'm like, I'm not like that's not the best intervention you could do. That's the best RCT they could run. Right. And 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 those are not necessarily the same thing. So so it's sort of like my mantra in on our team is our job is to first design the best intervention possible and then build in the best causal inference we possibly can to like estimate its effects and learn what we can from it. And, you know, we, we spend actually a lot of time trying to do that causal attribution in cases that are not as clean as just, you know, a, a simple randomized experience. Cause we do think that that's valuable, but it's, it's, it's just sort of an inversion of priorities of like, not the top priority is not the clean study. The top priority is, you know, save the planet. Um, and then we'll, and, and it's only instrumental that we care about the, the, the causal attribution which is valuable for understanding what programs to invest in and things like that, but is yeah. not a value in and of itself, which I do feel like it is in academia. I don't actually have a problem with it being that true in, in, in a lot of academia where you're trying to understand, you know, these, these, the more theoretical contribution side that we were talking about earlier. It's just the error in translation of like, and therefore that's the exact intervention we ought to be doing in the real world, rather than thinking about these like much more complex in intense interventions that tend to be the much more effective ones when you're trying to get thing, get people to do things like change their livelihood. So oftentimes, you know, these, these small nudges aren't trying to get people to do things like, you know, change their job or risk their entire crop on like a new farming strategy. Like if you want people to do that, it requires just a lot more intense, intense right. work. By the way, defaults being the one caveat to that, defaults are remarkably effective. They have huge effects. They're like the nudge that if you like want to poke at, at one saying like, no, no, this one actually has huge effects. That's the one you should go with. Right. It turns, I mean, I, I remember at some point, some podcast with Richard Taylor who said, if you want to make people do something, just make it easy for them to do it. And like a default does that. Yeah. The, 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 the I think there are two things going on there, though, too. Like the default is also just like what happens when you pay no attention whatsoever, which is a, which you could say is a form of ease, but it's 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 it, in, at least from a design perspective, I find it useful to distinguish them of okay. like the what happens if you don't even think about it versus I, I have you've made a choice or you've made a you have some like preference, but it's not super strong, um, and I need to make this easy so like we're eliminating all the possible sludge. Um, from you getting from point A to point B. Right. Um, and so, yeah. But but even that, I think, is is still almost like presupposing a lot of the stuff that was involved in some of the very early behavior change work of it not being about changing your preferences, but it being about just like making it easier for the small preference to carry the day or what you're not even attending to. Whereas actually a lot of our stuff is you're not gonna default anybody into you know, changing um, what what crop they're growing in their in their right. land, right? And and you're not while making it easy is important. Um, it's not all there is to it. You actually need to change someone's mindset here. Um, which it's not that behavioral science has nothing to say about it. It's just not as simple as a lot of those like kind of classic interventions would might make one believe. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm reminded of. And I just want to mention this briefly, a book called Making It Stick, which is about teaching. And uh, one of the arguments they make in there is that we need to just invert how we view effective teaching and learning. It's not about being most efficient. Like you learn the most new material when there's a lot of friction between you and mastery, when you're actually working through things and thinking hard about them. It's not about cognitive heuristics to like get you through it. That's how you learn stuff and then forget it. If you want to learn stuff and then have it stick, 
they argue that it's, it's the opposite behavior that's actually needed. And I struggle with this in our educational system because I feel like grading incentives and everything, a lot of students are incentivized to not have it stick, to kind of get through things efficiently. But so, I mean, I, I can, can I throw out an analogy? Because I think there's actually sure. quite good for, for, for that in the social space, because it, 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 there's a parallel here where like oftentimes the if you just want to get someone to do it right now, like the pay them large amounts to do it is actually like pretty effective. <laughs> Hmm. It's entirely ineffective, or I shouldn't say entirely, unless they've learned something from that experience, like, oh, this actually was better for me or something like that. That's not a good way of like sustaining behaviors. Um, and this is a big problem with how we do evaluation, where we'll just like leave and then pull right. the money out. And like, but that's where the social learning stuff, which might seem more intense in the beginning, but that has the same sort of like, you know, difficulty in implementation of like, oh, people need to have this, you know, communal recognition of like what we're trying to do and things like that, that is a lot harder than just paying someone up front, but it also will stick because of the self-reinforcing properties we were talking about earlier. Mm. So another connection I want to make, Eric, when you were talking about inverting your approach to science, it mirrors directly our conversation about panaceas from earlier, right? It's the question is what adapts to what? Does the hammer adapt to context or does the context adapt to the hammer, right? And so it's more or less what I heard you saying, right? Is in our science, do we have this method? And then we run our method a lot, whether it's in our uh, remote, I mean, I was RCT. Um, uh, randomized controlled trial. Yeah, so. I, I always just say RTC for some reason. I don't know if it's from <laughs> like, um, but right, do we have this like methodological hammer and then we try to generalize that or we try to understand, do we, do we start with the ultimate goal of doing applied work and then orient our science around that? I think it's a very parallel consideration there but, but i think there's i think there's something just like a bit it, it's a to 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 resort to sort of a rational explanation there's a bit of like an incentives problem here. like what with like the, the, the even if people didn't want to just do like these like clean strong causal inference studies um that don't actually tell us what to go out and do in the world um it would they they would have trouble um, because if if they want to stay and do that in in academia, academia so yeah. you know there exist groups like ours that are like more interested in in doing that but it, but it's but that's because we have an entirely different incentive structure um, right. and the, of what what promotes it so I don't think it's just like a, almost like a like just an individual people just didn't think about it hard enough problem it's a like well this is the system that they've they've been placed in yep. that encourages them to to do those styles of of trials yeah and getting back to social influence eric i mean i was reminded of the importance this is something else that that joe henrik actually talks about is kind of prestige based prestige bias right we don't just listen to anyone we listen there's there's Ethnolinguistic homophily, we pay more attention to people who we perceive to be like us. We pay more attention to people who are in positions of prestige, right? All of that matters as well. So it's not just, as you said, right? It's not just our brains don't just calculate a number informally and say, oh, well, 85% of people around me are doing this. Who are those people? Because we, we, our process of who we pay attention to is deeply non-random. Have you yeah. all looked at, at those issues in your work on social influence? A ton because what oftentimes what we'll do once we've got someone to the point we're working with a partner let's say and we like okay the social influence stuff is really important they'll then go look for who is the easiest person for me to convert and then use that as sort of the signal to the rest of the community right the problem with that is the easiest person to convert 
may well not be the most influential. In fact, um, some, some research suggests they're negatively correlated. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the, the easiest people to convert are on the periphery of, of a network who have the least invested in the status quo. Um, and in fact, the most influential people are those oftentimes who are most central and might be most like uninterested in things changing because they have a particular direction that they would like them to continue. Mm. So, but so, so, you know, we've brought in techniques from, um, from network science for being able to identify like who are the most influential folks in a, you know, in a given network. Um, but still there's this like sort of return investment trade-off of we have to be, when you're thinking about how to convince a population you're not just thinking about everybody is equally positioned because we know social transmission is happens. In fact, we're relying on it. So we need to be thinking about how is that information actually sort of moving through the, not just information, but influence moving yep. through, through the network. I mean, I'm reminded of, and I don't know, really know this literature. I just know it exists. Implementation science. I feel like I've seen it in the realm of healthcare, right? It's, it's one thing to prescribe a drug. It's another to actually get people to take their regimen of drugs. And, you know, now that some people are taking dozens and dozens of drugs, that becomes a pretty intractable issue. Is there a science of like applied behavioral science? It sounds like almost, that's kind of almost what you're talking about. Like, how do we actually understand how things are working in the world? Is that how you describe this? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably right. I mean, I, 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 I think that probably parallels a lot of yeah the the way in which we think about doing it. What I what I don't want to sort of be seen as is almost like throwing under the bus a lot of behavioral scientists who are thinking about the applications of their stuff. I think mm -hmm. that the difficulty they have is they don't have almost like the capacity, um, the 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 incentives like aligned and and the capacity within their role to be able to really explore and invest in in these styles of um, this like thinking about the the rollout of okay. you know, the the strategy or something like that. You know, it, a, a counter example that I think makes it really clear is. Uh, there's this um, amazing cluster randomized trial of this program called Solarize. Um, now, Solarize encourages like the adoption of rooftop solar um, in the United States, um, but it's very hard to evaluate because it's actually rolled out at like the city level. It has you know a dozen different components to it. Um, it's it's just a really thorny problem, and unless you're willing to put in just an absurd amount of of effort, um, you you just can't and stick around in academia and and more power um, to who the folks who actually like are able to do that research but it's it's so rare um, and but it's exactly the kind of thing that brings together like yeah we're gonna bring the rigor of um, you know in this case cluster randomized trials um, but we're we're going to invest the multi years that it's going to take to actually test like the programs that actually matter. Like that's the kind of thing that we really need to know whether it works, whether or not it works to like get people to adopt solar. Um, but instead you get these like small interventions where, it, where our dependent variable is like whether they clicked a link or something rather than whether or not they actually installed solar. Right. I mean, I'm, again, I'm reminded of the work out of MIT and other places led by like Esther Duflo on in the in the development sector, these randomized controlled trials um, that happening largely in development um, contexts. But I should mention, Eric, I want to be sensitive to your time as well. We're rocketing towards an hour and a half. I had wanted to talk about emotions with you. Um, we had also talked 
I'd also been interested in asking you about, you know, how you perceive your relationship with academia. To some extent, we've kind of been talking a little bit about that already. Um, what's your preference? Are there, you know, given if we spend like another, if, if you're up for like talking for like 10 minutes, because again, yeah. I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, where would you prefer to go next? Do you want to talk a bit more about academia and the relationship between your kind of organization and academia? I don't know if we have a lot of time to dig into like your work on emotions. What are you thinking? What's your cutoff? Um, I have no cutoff. <laughs> I'm available, but I'm just trying to be sensitive to like your. Yeah. Demands. Um. Let's 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 go to like 15 after, and then maybe we can do both. Sure. So I'm happy to do either one first. Um. I mean, it, it feels like there's a less less of a segue needed to talk about academia and how you relate to it, since we're already kind of doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think I, I owe it to our academic partners after all the um, excrement that I've been flinging um, to point out how actually critical like our, our partnerships um, with, with them are for the large amount of, uh, yeah, just a huge amount of the work that, that we do. Um, so, you know, having these opportunities to both think about the design of the programs, but also their evaluations um, has improved the quality of a fair amount of the work that we do. What we're oftentimes looking for, which is, you know, a, it's not all academics, which is fine, but is, is partners who have this, maybe not to the same extent, but they impact first mindset. Um, I think the, 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 the golden example that I have of this is the applied cooperation team at, at MIT um, who have done a lot of work with us, who very much are of the mindset of like, we want to be available, we want to be helpful. Um, and, you know, if we end up finding a way to um, make a cool paper out of this, like, great. But our primary interest right now is like, we've done a lot of research and we want to translate that into impact in the real world. Um, that is, you know, the, everything, you know, that's one end of a spectrum. Um, but if you look at sort of our panel of advisors to the to the B Center, you'll see a, a bunch of academics um, who all give us an immense amount of feedback on on the work that we're doing. Um, that that ends up being really really critical for for you know what's going on. I, I think the 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 other sort of key part of our relationship is uh, um, of the of the you know, five core team members like on the, of like the research and design team, like four of us have PhDs. Like, you know, and so I'm, I'm pulling people out of academia to, to come work on these projects. And it's because there's a, there's a useful training there, despite them having you no know, different skill sets, they're bringing a very useful training and skill set to just applied in a somewhat different way where we're not purely focused on, on the, um, you know, publishable unit, um, but it's it's still the same training, which allows us to, I think, interface really smoothly and nicely with with academic teams, where we have a, a little bit of work to do whenever we want to sort of prove that, like, no, we we know what we're talking about, like we're we're not, um, you know, it doesn't doesn't take. Yeah, they don't. They don't feel like that. The reason people aren't they, these folks don't want to operate in the exact way we do is because they don't understand. But as once we can get to the point of like, no, we understand what your constraints are. Um, let's find like the middle ground. We end up with a lot of you know useful collaborations. Yeah, I mean it's really interesting. I, from my own perspective, is that there should be a lot more. Uh, how do I say this? Applied engagement um, from academia. That's something I've kind of chafed against since entering academia however many years ago 
I mean, it's also interesting to think of your organization as, uh, I'm not sure this is right, but I'll say the word, like a boundary actor between academia and applied settings. Um, within the commons field, we think a lot about this, certain types of actors. And it's, you know, it's, it's reflected a lot in, like, in network science that you mentioned earlier too, like folks that connect different communities through these kind of bridging links as opposed to the bonding links within communities. Um, does that fit your, your self-understanding in your role as being a kind of actor like that? Very much. And I, I mean, it's in, it's built into the design of the center where there was sort of this recognition of like, this is underrepresented in the environmental space. And this is before I existed in the organization. Right. Um, but there was this recognition of this, like both internal to ourselves at rare, um, despite us focusing on behavior for decades, like we may not have been focusing on behavioral science um, as well as the broader environmental space. So how do we sort of, rising tide lift all boats in the environmental space, well, we need to build the bridge. Um, so that is a big reason for why the center exists is to do that somewhat, translation is maybe one way of talking about it, but like turning these useful concepts into something um, usable by environmental um, practitioners who, you know, are um, and shouldn't, um, who are not and shouldn't be getting PhDs in in this stuff. Like that's not the like the the right solution here is just to send everybody back to school. Um, I think a lot of those places could you know benefit from you know hiring somebody on or something like that to help in that in that translation into their own programming. But a, a big part of why we're doing a lot of advising stuff is recognizing that um, you know we can exist as the bridge not just into rare but also into other other environmental organizations. Interesting. Yeah. Again, like in, in my own field, I mean, the commons is a reasonably applied field. There's lots of people who consider working at organizations like that as like a very valid career path. I think that's really healthy. Yeah. I think, I think psychology lags <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the sense that, I mean, there, there's clinical psychology where it is seen as like a very valid, but like in the, on the researchy, not just, it's not research, sorry, but on the, on the more like basic research side of things, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it, you know, I was very lucky to have an advisor who, when I came to, you know, a couple of years into my PhD, um, I was like, I don't think I actually want to stay in academia. Um, she was incredibly supportive and started mm -hmm. lining me up with projects to do far more applied things. Oh, that's um, so valuable. But it, incredibly, like, I mean, I, I owe that transition the, the ability to engage in that transition to to her. Um, but I also know a number of people who did not experience that. And in fact, what they experienced was not, you know, they weren't kicked out, but the, but a, 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 you know, less investment um, that, that nobody was like trying to shift networking for them and stuff like that, which is, which is the amazing experience that I had. Um, but it's be, because it's just, because of the, the norm just being like what you know, were talking about, like what, what prestige is. So in that social group, prestige is ending up at a research one university um, in a tenure track position. Um, and it takes a much broader conception of, of what a successful career outcome can look like for, for an advisor to then come in and say like, I'm going to invest in this person um, continually, even if this is not the track that I necessarily brought them into. Perhaps one one benefit that my my advisor had was, you know, she was a very established researcher. Like she wasn't trying to make tenure herself, which in psychology really requires your grad students to be outputting stuff with you on their paper. Right. Um, and so she she kind of benefited in that way of that social position, but still, like it it 
she, you know, it probably became a, if she was only judging based on placements in research one, you know, universities, then like I became a drag rather than a, a positive output, but that wasn't her conceptualization. Which certainly says something about academic incentives as well, right? The degree to which 100%. PhD students are seen as uh, sources of output. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Emotions. I, I mean, I will say that this is uh, one of the things, again, I've enjoyed about this podcast is the ability to talk about things that don't make it into the method section of a PDF and the ability to kind of open up about a lot of aspects of our experience. So I was excited when you mentioned, um, when you included in that email, this report that had to do with like the role of emotions in behavior and behavioral change. And I think it's correct in that paper, it talks about this kind of functionalist interpretation of emotions. We have emotions because they've they serve us well. We, if you don't have a particular emotion, then you can't navigate certain social uh, uh, situations very well. So can you um, tell me what the role of emotions are in your work? And honestly, I'd be interested, Eric, in a second question is how has this work on emotions behavioral change influenced how you yourself understand your emotions? Yeah. So you're, you're right to say that we sort of take this functionalist approach with the sort of the, the understanding that um, whether or not that's how exactly how they're being expressed now, like the, the reason that we experience um, emotions is because um, we evolved to experience emotions. And uh, what the kind of cultural component of that, similar to what we were discussing before of like the relationship between culture and evolution here is um, like the, the, those, those emotions have sort of cropped up to lead to particular behavioral outputs with particular classes of input, but sort of what defines what's in that class can be socially constructed. Um, and what this sort of contrasts a bit with is a lot of behavior change um, strategies or, or uh, you know, like models for behavior change, they recognize the role of emotion, but they just sort of like say emotion. And they, they, that's that's the end of the day. They just say like emotions relevant. Um, and it's like, well, that's not great <laughs> um, because it doesn't really tell us what to do there other than just like make people emotional. Like that presumably can't actually be the, the, the intended output. So instead, what what we did in that in that paper was really try to demonstrate for a particular set of emotions, which is not exhaustive. And um, we really just wanted to like sort of make a case for this being like a good way to think about emotion um, and show how you know there actually is good evidence for particular emotions um, leading to a particular sort of pattern of, of of behavioral response. And by understanding that, you can understand as someone trying to change behavior, you know, what, what emotion, you know, would be relevant in this case. So an example that kind of pulls a bit from actually some stuff I was doing all the way back in my, my dissertation was on um, anger. So oftentimes there's this, there's this bias that has frustrated me quite a bit in the environmental space of there was sort of a backlash against negative emotions where like, people were like just doing negative stuff. And then it was like, oh, no, be positive. And I think that that became a bit of a trope in the sense mm -hmm. of like, it was just assumed that that's what you do. Um, instead of understanding like, hey, what, what positive emotion, first of all, positive negative is a dimension, but like, it doesn't actually that is not sufficient for understanding emotion. And right. two, like what, 
what is the relevance of positive emotion or negative emotion or particular emotions in different contexts? So anger, for example, we might think of as this thing that promotes aggression. Um, and there is context when anger does lead to aggression. Um, anger also leads people to um, you know, punishing the violators of social norms. So if we're looking for how um, to you know, encourage like a strong social norm, anger actually ends up being a, a, a relevant component for social enforcement. Um, so that's not saying, you know, just go make people angry, like that's a bad solution, but it is understanding like what is the, the relevant sort of emotion for this particular, this particular behavior. So Eric, you're reminding me of, okay, what you said, particularly in the middle sounded, it, it mapped onto my experience whereby it felt like for a long time, there was a lot of environmental messaging that had a negative valence, right? Hey folks, things are getting worse. And it turns out every time we find out something new, it's worse than we thought they were the last time we found out there was something new. And yeah, my personal response to that has been to feel discouraged. Yeah. And I remember reading about, it was, it was a water-oriented NGO, and there was an article about this water-oriented NGO that said, this organization has decided that these, some negative emotions, let's say, and I think this is more a along a dimension of like hope versus despair, right? Um, which I know you've also thought about the role of hope. Um, let's not give people more reasons to despair. That's just going to make them give up. People need to feel like they have this need to be efficacious, to feel like their actions impact collective outcomes. Well, we need to show them the positive things we're doing with their money because that'll make them psychologically associate their actions with the outcomes that they see. And therefore we're cultivating uh, positive emotions. So Eric, that convinced me when I read that. That felt good. I felt more hopeful and I thought and part of my brain was like, well, yes, of course, like, let's not just hammer people with how bad things are. Um, let's feed into their need to feel good and leverage that for positive change. So now I feel like you're telling me that uh, maybe my response itself was overly simplistic. It's almost like we want to get back into the, just the complexification of everything, but uh -huh. uh, yeah. yeah, but, but, but yeah, no, I, 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 I think that you're, so, so, so they, I don't know the particular paper, but by, it sounds like they're actually making a particular claim about a particular emotion, right? Which is actually the way that I want this literature to proceed rather than okay. just thinking about it as positive negative, um, mm -hmm. but thinking about, well, what does this emotion do? Um, and how might that, like given the behavioral pattern that we expect from it, work or not work for us? So, so there's a different lever think, for each emotion. You, so so, so it's, it's almost like the emotions themselves could can be levers. Right. <laughs> so yeah. which emotion do you select um, depends on what you're trying to do there. So the the this this question of what uh, builds efficacy versus undermines efficacy super important for a lot of the behaviors that we work on. For example, getting people to adopt um, you know climate friendly behaviors, right? Like if 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 somebody if you have demotivated someone and made them feel like what they're doing doesn't matter. Um, that is that is ineffective, um, yep. and and we wouldn't want that. However, there was just some. There's been like two papers published this last year on again the relationship of like anger motivating climate action, um, which is different than despair, right? Like despair is not is is probably totally. more line. You know, I haven't done a deep dive into despair, um, but more this sort of like I'm just going to sit at home and wait for the the end of the world versus um, anger being this thing that can get you in the streets. 
Um, and in fact, like if you, if you look at the literature on, on movement building, um, anger is a regular, <laughs> a regular component of that. So if you think that the change, the behavior you need is actually people in the streets, then purely focusing on, um, you're gonna say purely, not ignoring hope, but purely focusing on hope, I don't think is the way that you're getting people in the streets. Um, and it's that recognition of like, well, what behavior am I going for here? Um, and what's going, what's likely to be most efficacious given the my understanding of, of how this emotion functions. Okay, so we have three minutes and I can't help myself to ask this next question. This To me, this gets back to intergroup conflict because aren't you angry at someone else? So it depends a lot on sort of how you're doing the 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 anger how you're sort of structuring the anger like actually a weird thing so 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 a lot of my dissertation stuff was actually about empathy and moral outrage so this particular sort of anger mm. um, and what you find in the moral outrage stuff is it can actually be more amorphous than empathy. Like empathy definitely needs a target, right? Like it doesn't make sense to be empathic towards. Just nothing. generally. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas like anger, while there does generally like something that you're angry about, um, it, it and it usually has some like agency to it. It's, it doesn't need that same degree of, so, so but you, you could imagine someone being angry about what their policymakers um, have chosen. You can imagine someone being angry about the choices that um, particular corporations are making. And those would all be like plausibly, like solidly motivating factors for, again, a particular pattern of behavior you're trying to trying to drive. Okay, I mean, it still sounds to me like there's a subject and an object there. No, I, I, no, I think you're right. I think it's just, okay. it's the degree to which it, it needs to be super well specified, almost okay. like what the, what the object is. Um, the surprising thing that I found in the anger literature is like, it can be, broader than that but okay. it, but yeah you you are there is still like a an object of that that you're directing that anger towards yeah interesting um okay well obviously we could go on for a long time um do you have any final thoughts threads that you wanted to try to tie up a bit before we sign off well i appreciate you bringing me on um and i mean i think the the you know, value of reaching an audience like yours, which has a lot of both academics, but also academics focused on these, uh, you know, crossover challenges of like trying to understand, both willing to work outside of, you know, narrow casting their discipline, as well as, you know, wanting to have an impact is sort of this, this, this recognition that there is, you know, places for that level of rigorous thinking um, to be working in this kind of very applied way and applied, not just meaning that like, oh, you know, you got your boots dirty because you ended up in the, you know, you, you got out of, of your office, but applied in the sense that we're actually trying to have an impact. Um, and if that is the type of thing that you're interested in, you know, Rare is a possible organization to be looking at for, um, you know, um, environmental behavior change, particularly in sort of like the cooperative space, um, but we're not the only one. Um, and so if you're interested in that sort of stuff, feel free to reach out to me, whether it's rare or me directing you somewhere else. Um, I, I, you know, a big part of my role is this sort of interface with, with academia. Um, so I, I'd love to have the conversation. That's awesome. I, yeah, off the top of my head, I know a bunch of people that are interested in trying to explore those options. So thank you for that offer. Well, and again, thanks, Eric. This was really great. A lot of brain food here for me. I'm going to go have, have lunch and maybe take a nap. 
Hey, Michael, it was great to speak to you again. Um, have a good afternoon. Yep, take care. I'll be in touch. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries on our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.